the town was still not AAA, regardless of being the most aggressive in terms of funding OPEB in the state. But it continued to hit the community on its approach to pension, which was, you know, you're just going to fund what you're legally obligated to fund in a regional pension system. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are, of course, proudly sponsored by Odyssey Advisors, the Government Finance Officers Association, Muni Pro, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, Bonafide Fiscal Policy Wonk, Disciplinarian of Felines, Chicken Connoisseur, <laughs> Rural Maryland Resident, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Um, yeah, no, uh, no pet news as of late. Although um, we did get our, I don't know if this is this is public money pot appropriate. We our our pig season is over. Our harvest we have harvested our pigs. Uh, um, yes. Yeah, not us personally, of course, but yes, we've gotten them back and have been sampling the pork. We're having ham and eggs tonight. I'll let you know how that is next week. <laughs> um, we always have a nice ham for Chris for our our Christmas dinner uh, next month. So. Um, it's it's that like season where we just that time of year where we just feel like we have all kinds of all kinds of choices again, but it's it's fun. <laughs> That's great. Are they, and are they your eggs too? Yes, yes, they are our wow. eggs. <laughs> wow, those are the whole the whole thing. Wow, that's, <laughs> that's exciting. Yeah, of course. The old saying is, uh, "How's that go?" If you're making if you're making ham and eggs, the chicken is a stakeholder, but the pig is committed. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> Sometimes I'm amazed that I used to be a vegetarian. <laughs> Look at me now. <laughs> yes, yes. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, so I'm not sure how to transition from that, except to just transition from that. But so we're talking today about OPEB, other post-employment benefit liabilities, which are a huge concern in state and local public finance, a relatively recent concern, but one that we often talk about in the context of benefits and, and, and pay for both our active employees as well as our retired employees. We often put them in the same family as pensions. Both are commitments that an employer makes to its active employees and to its retirees. Once you retire, you expect in the case of OPEB, which means primarily retiree healthcare benefits. There's other benefits included in that, like life insurance and disability, but it's mainly healthcare benefits. You as somebody who retires from a state or local government expect that from the time you retire until the time you become eligible for Medicare, that you'll have some version of the health insurance benefits that you had while you were an active employee. And in many cases, you have states and local governments that are also then subsidizing access to uh, an add-on to Medicare, Medicare supplemental plan or something along those lines. And these are all paid for in part by your local government or your state government that you work for for a long time. So just like with pensions, which are income in retirement, OPEB is access to healthcare in retirement. They're similar in that they're both long-term commitments, but they're also very different in terms of the structure of those benefits. And importantly, how much control a state or local government has over when and where and how those benefits are provided. And this is the thing that gets a lot of attention. The interplay between the two, how you manage these liabilities, how you fund these liabilities, huge concerns and big challenges. We're fortunate to have on the pod today, Travis Ahern, who is the town administrator for the town of Holliston, Massachusetts, which has emerged as a real leader in this space. We're going to hear about their approach, some of the challenges, some of the opportunities that that approach presents. Really interesting stuff on such an important public money topic. 
Liz, you've written probably more stories than anyone about pensions and OPEB. When you think about uh, some of the big challenges and trends there, to set the stage for our conversation with Travis, what comes to mind? Yeah, I would say I've definitely written a lot of OPEB stories, and they really started kind of rising, I guess, more to the surface when GASB 74 and 75 in the, the mid-2010s were issued. And what, what that that did, that new rule did for um, for annual reports was it required governments to take their OPEB liabilities and put them right there on the balance sheet. So now it's counting against your, your net assets. And um, something similar had happened for pensions as well. And I guess what that did is in a lot of places, I heard people start talking about OPEB is the next shoe to drop. It's been almost a decade since then, and people are still saying that. Uh, I think there's just been so much focus on on pensions, and the the one of the last stories I wrote on pensions to me kind of signals maybe that shift actually is starting to happen now because pensions on the whole are a lot more stable than they've been, are more stable than they've been in since we were going into the Great Recession. And things again, while there's a lot of differences between localities and even states, I think a lot of places have taken those steps they need to take to be on that path where their pensions are either going to stabilize or they are stabilizing. Retiring healthcare, that's, uh, I haven't seen a ton of that, you know. So I think the last story I wrote about pensions, people, uh, one of my sources kind of alluded to that. He said, I think, you know, pensions, people people know about this now. You know, the, all the news is out, all the, the, the ideas for the most part are out there, but OPEB is something is, that people haven't even started to think about in a lot of places. And, and so that is certainly something I see now as as retiree healthcare being perhaps a little bit more elevated now and also just people being educated about it. And I think, again, pensions have been such a part of the conversation for the last decade or so that people don't necessarily need the educating on that, that they're going to need on OPEB. But perhaps now is the time to start those conversations with elected officials, with lawmakers, you know, department heads about just kind of planting those seeds of this is a liability that we have. And yes, it's we're not locked into it like we are with pensions, but you don't want to you don't want to take away people's health care. And so that's uh, that's something that, that policymakers, I, I hope, are, are doing and starting to do. And they certainly certainly are and have been in Holliston. I wrote a, a, a paper on OPEB liabilities almost 20 years ago now, long before those GASB standards that you mentioned were put in place. And and it, it was amazing at the time because it, it was pretty clear that the jurisdictions that had what would ultimately become really large OPEB liabilities were starting to already show up. You were seeing that not obviously not on the balance sheet, as you were saying, because this, the accounting rules didn't require that, but you were seeing it kind of baked into credit ratings and you were seeing it kind of baked into some investor sentiment. And the tendency there was that it, it, it tended to, to correlate with other kinds of indicators of fiscal stress. It was the same communities that had you know, really high debt loads overall, underfunded pensions, neglected infrastructure. These were all kind of part of the same general malaise and having really, really generous benefits and not much funding for those benefits, which would become an OPEB liability down the road. That was also already 20 years ago showing up in some of the, in, in some of what you were seeing in credit ratings and, and investor sentiment. So it is definitely something that's been out there for a long time. The challenge, as you were saying, is it's what's really interesting to watch is, is how you deal with that liability, both from a funding perspective, but also from just kind of managing the messaging around it. A lot of jurisdictions have decided to not cut those benefits or not make any substantial changes to to what they're offering or how they're paying for it. But in the absence of a set of rules and requirements like you have with pensions, you have to almost kind of self-impose those rules and requirements and then tell that story 
to the credit rating agencies, to taxpayers, to state legislators and others who care about this. And it creates a, a really a real challenge. It's it's not just a financial challenge, it's also a you know sort of a governance challenge in some ways. And so lots of really interesting wrinkles like pensions, but also very different from pensions. That's why it's great to have Travis on to tell us a little bit more about his experience. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Travis O'Hearn, who is the town administrator in the town of Holliston, Massachusetts. Travis, welcome to the Public Money Pod. Thank you for having me. Travis, welcome. Can you, you're the town administrator of Holliston. Before we kind of launch into some of the details about what's been going on there recently, tell us a little bit, just to set the stage for our listeners, tell us about Holliston, people who may not be familiar with it, its residents, geography, demographics, budget size. Um, give us a, a sense of, of, of where you are. Yeah, so the town of Holliston is in the metro west area of Boston. It's an area that has seen significant population growth in the last decade and more. Holliston's been insulated a little bit from that growth based on really sort of limitations in our infrastructure for, for denser housing uh, like sewerage. Um, but otherwise, you know, we're experiencing generally the same type of growth just on a smaller scale as the other communities. So we're bordered, landlocked by five communities, Sherburn, Ashland, Hopkinton, Milford, Medway. People outside of the Boston area would know Hopkinton is the start of the, the Boston Marathon. Uh, our demographics, you know, again, they're shifting just as they are in the area. Our FY24 budget, which we're in the middle of now, was uh, $72.5 million, which is about 60-40 split schools in town, pretty standard. Um, but once you drill into that budget, you see the, the, the town side of that budget uh, incorporates all of the benefits, right? And that's pretty common for the 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts. I work for three of them. Pretty common split. Once you drill into that, we have about 339 active plans for, um, for our health benefits. And again, if you look at that, it's about a 65-35 split of school employees versus town employees. So then once you, you sort of factor all of those things in, our, uh, our million and a half that we contribute to OPEB, which we'll talk about in a little bit, our benefits budget of about $6.8 million, all of that splits down to another 65-35 split of school in town. And so really, you know, on the bottom line of everything, what we're pretty much skewed total of the 72.5 million 65% is about schools. Um, and again, based on my my other municipal experiences in Massachusetts, that's that's a pretty standard split. Uh, the benefits budget, $6.8 million, So that's a little under 10% of what you said your general fund budget is. Is that is that high, low? Give us a sense of kind of what the, that burden is. Well, so again, the 6.8 is just a, the sort of pay go. Um, and so it's it doesn't include the $1.5 million we contribute to OPEB uh, and some other things we'll get into probably. But yeah, I think that that is, it's pretty good as you compass out in the area within what the town contributes to both active and retiree plans. The town contributes 60%. Employees or retirees contribute 40% of cost of premium. That does not comp out very well to our neighboring communities. And we actually, we have that discussion quite a bit. 70-30 is a, is a more common uh, employer-employee split. That's one of the things that's that sort of helped the town of Holliston balance its budget on an annual basis, but is something that we hear about consistently as it, as it comes to recruitment and retention, uh, which is a significant concern that all of the municipalities are having right now. So 
the 6.8 million is relatively reasonable within that, but we are, you know, we were experiencing just like anybody else, a lot of pressure on that budget. As a town our size of 15,000 residents and, and 1,100 so on employees, but really 600 plus um, benefit eligible, we only have a few options uh, for, for covering ourselves with health benefits. We can go direct uh, with a carrier, but what happens there, and I've been through that in other municipalities in the past, carrier loses a million dollars on you, the next year they're going to make up that million dollars on you and you cannot handle that type of fluctuation in your budget. So we're pretty much set with consortiums that can handle what we need for our employees in in the Metro West area of Boston. A lot of really high cost uh, healthcare centers in Boston, top of the field in, in all the country, but you know it comes at a cost. So we really need to, to protect ourselves and be in a consortium. So we're in a group called the West Suburban Health Group uh, with a number of communities in our area. The other ones that make sense, one is state-sponsored, which is the GIC, uh, and the other one is called MIA, M-I-I-A, which is where we get our non-health insurance coverages from, and now they're in the insurance, uh, health insurance business as well. And so those are really, on an annual basis, we look at the market compared to where we are, and the West Suburban Health Group offers numerous carriers, and we've seen a ton of movement within those carriers. Fallon was one that was the most loved by a number of employees because of its low cost for premium. Uh, Fallon decided last year, we're just not going to have active plans anymore. We're only going to focus on retiree plans. And they got out of the game. We have Tufts and we have Harvard within the West Suburban Health Group. They're consolidating next year. So all of those plans become one. So the, you know the consolidation, the market, all of those things are really impacting us. And so within the FY24 budget, we essentially took it on the chin, about 10% increase. If we had been with the GIC or Maya, which are the competitors to the West Suburban Health Group for us, we would have seen the exact same increase. So it's progressing very quickly here. Uh, we've been able to weather the storm, but uh, it's, it's a tough market right now. Those market structure challenges certainly sound like they're pretty daunting, especially when the goal is to try to find the, the best package available for, for your employees. What if you could zoom out just a little bit and tell us about some of the broader challenges that are kind of driving this for you? Are these sort of demographic changes? Are they, is a change in composition of your, of your workforce? You know, what, why is it that it's so hard to find kind of the right match between what your employees need and what the market is able to offer? So there's a couple things, I think, for the Holliston specific example here, this might come down to how Massachusetts is structured, and you might just need to put that in a a broader perspective as you you kind of zoom out here. But so essentially where we are, right, we have active plans that are the same plans you'd have regardless of a public or, or private employer, right? But then we also offer retiree plans, and those are Medicare supplemental plans. Prior to some changes in Mass General Law within the last 10 years, it was up to a town to opt in to Medicare Part B, which meant if you're a public employee, you retire, you must get onto Medicare. The town had that ability under law, and it was up to each town to either opt in or opt out of that. If you keep a retiree on an active plan, it's more out of pocket for them because Medicare covers a lot of costs, which is a benefit to the employee, but it also puts a lot more on the city or town. And so what we saw was most towns start to opt in and then mass general law changed and everybody was sort of forced in. If you're eligible for Medicare, you must get onto Medicare Part B. But a community like Holliston and most communities that I'm aware of also are in some way 
required to or opt into offering uh, supplemental plans. And so the supplemental plans are a, a lot less of an expense to a town, a lot less of an expense to an employee. But based on, again, Mass General laws, and, and this is more of the IRS, so this is probably more national than Massachusetts, we had a number of employees, and I've, I've experienced this again in other communities, this isn't Hollis in specific, where we have retirees who were hired before a date in the 1980s where they're not eligible for Medicare even though they are forced by the mass general law to get onto Medicare. So we can't do anything about that. And so the person would just stay on an active plan forever, higher cost to the town, higher OPEB valuation, higher cost to the uh, retiree. And so what we saw after that was we saw we started to see some changes in code. And this is national again, where you can buy somebody onto Medicare Part A, but if you're buying them on when they're 90 years old, it's going to cost the town more than if they're 67. And so the town of Holliston actually right now, and this is one of the things I think we'll talk about a little bit too, in terms of how we address OPEB, we're buying the 17 some odd current retirees who are not Medicare eligible and are on active plans onto Medicare Part A. And we tried to do this last year in the IRS offices, essentially through a, through a roadblock at us. And so this is attempt number two. Other communities in our area have done it. We're not the first one by any means. And so those are some of the things that have happened in the last 10 years or so that have said, look, there's a lot of ways that we can be improving this. And every time we try to do that, we hit some roadblocks. I, just as a follow-up on the on some of the specifics around your retiree population, I think one of the criticisms of of OPEB broadly has been that retirees, especially from municipal governments, cops, firefighters, and then teachers, obviously in your case, tend to retire earlier than everyone else and tend to be less healthy when they retire, therefore requiring more health care, more expensive health care. Is that consistent with your experience? Yes. So in Massachusetts, and this is going to be mass general law specific, so you know it's not transferable at all times, firefighters, police officers, and if you have municipal electric, um, which I did in another community I work for, you're group four. So you get to retire significantly earlier than the rest of the population. And when you do that, it's going to impact your pension liability because that person is going to have a lot more years in retirement and pay into the system for less years. But it impacts OPEB too, because if you have an individual who's in group four in Massachusetts and you retire at 55, well, you're not at Medicare eligible. And so now let's say you retire at 55. Well, now we know you have another 10 years on the active plan before the, the Medicare requirement kicks in and you go to Medicare part B. So we have to factor in and our uh, OPEB actuary, which is uh, Parker Elmore, has to factor in that employee is going to retire at 55, but they're going to remain on an active plan for another 10 years. And then they're going to go to Medicare Part B. And that's going to impact our actuarial valuation for the OPEB side. But our retiree side is going to have an actuarial valuation that also assumes that this person is going to retire at 55 and they're going to live to uh, an age set by the mortality table. And that, that's a significant more benefit there. So it is something that, that absolutely comes up uh, it's something that, that we certainly have to consider. So for example, some of the things that we've done in Holliston to try to address our OPEB liability, really more than anything with headcount is we'd always like to regionalize as much as possible. It's something that all municipalities need to look at, but it's one of the most difficult things for us to do because so many things are viewed in silos of this is the community that I live in, this is the service level that I'm paying for with my taxes, et cetera. And so one of the things that the town of Holliston recently did was joined what is a growing movement in terms of regional 
public safety dispatch. And so we have public safety dispatch in this town on both the fire and the police side. So you transition that to a regional system, and now we're paying an assessment to the regional public safety dispatch, and the, their OPEB costs are built into the assessment that we pay them, and they're coming off of our OPEB liability. But one of the things is that we want a 24-7 police station because at any given point, you have all types of needs for somebody to be able to go to a building. That would be the only building in all of the town that would be open 24-7 if you have a public safety emergency. So while we reduce the headcount by moving dispatchers into a, a regional system, we have to hire additional police officers to maintain a schedule as 24-7. And the, dispatch, the dispatchers... We're not in group four, they're in group two, and the two police officers are in group four. And so you have to factor all of these things in. And it's it's just an incredibly complicated scenario where we net out to a lower headcount, but because of the group four component, it really takes away some of the benefit. And Holliston is one of the is in, in the minority of, of cities and, and states that, that has an OPEB trust that prefunds it. As I understand that it hasn't always been that way. I guess that was around twenty fourteen or so when, when that was started. So can you tell us a little bit about that and then um, about the more recent efforts to, to bump up that prefunding? Sure. So the town found some favorability about 10 years ago, where savings to the retiree plan. And so again, uh, municipalities in Massachusetts um, negotiate some aspects of insurances for public employees. And that's with the PEC, which is the public employee committee. Based on that, you have to share some savings as a community with the the employees and the retirees. and, And that's all negotiated through a PEC agreement. The community with some changes that happened by changing providers, changing groups was about a million and a half dollars, right? Net of the benefits that must be shared under Mass General Law with the retirees and the employees. And so what the finance committee at the time, uh, the select board, and then ultimately town meeting decided to do was take that favorability rather than allowing that to flow to other potential operating costs that could be used uh, with that money, that could be accomplished with that money, was to begin to use that $1.5 million to put towards OPEB. At the time, the trust did not exist. And this is before my time, so I'm, I'm recounting a little bit here. They took the $1.5 million savings net of what needed to be shared uh, with the employees, and they began to put that into what was an OPEB stabilization fund at the time. That was a commitment made by that finance committee and select board, which, you know, every time these are elected officials that, that change on a regular basis. We have an elected finance committee. Some have appointed it. It's sort of not necessary to this point, because what you're doing is really taking multiple stakeholders within the community and saying, this is what we're agreeing to do for a period of time. And our our successors may disagree, and that will be something that we change at that point. So they started to do that $1.5 million. The movement within Massachusetts and more broadly throughout the country based on Gatsby changes was if you create a trust fund, you can now credit your balance sheet with the assets that you have if they're in a trust, specifically not a stabilization fund. So then what you saw was any community that had begun to do this to create trust funds and then have that balance within a trust fund and be able to invest it more aggressively for long-term investments. And so the community did that. And so $1.5 million starting in FY15 through now, and I believe at the end of this past June, we're about $27 million in that fund, including earnings. It's invested in the state's system called PRIT, that has been how the community has done it to date. Now, every year prior to me being here and since I've been here, we get a consistent uh, request when it relates to, you know, look, we need to balance this budget. So we need to make X, Y, or Z cut, or, you know, you've requested this, but it can't fit within the bottom line of the budget. We'll consistently get questions of, well, what if you just reduce the $1.5 million that you're putting into OPEB? 
And so the way that I would sort of look at that, and this is again, more general than just the town of Holliston is myself as a town administrator, Holliston, um, my treasure collector, my town accountant, my assessor, right? We sit down periodically with a bond rating agency in this town. It's, it's S and P in my previous community, it was Moody's. And really part of the issue is that, well, we can be changing these things. We can be changing assumptions. We can be changing our process, but they need to be deliberate. They need to be discussed broadly and they need to be communicated to a number of stakeholders, including the external ones, which is, you know, your bond rating agency. And so as of now, the, the community has a financial policy that says we're going to put $1.5 million into the OPEB trust fund on an annual basis. And that's what we've done. I think one of the things that we've looked at most recently is <clears throat> where does the pension fit with the OPEB trust liability, right? Those are two of your major liabilities, your other being long-term debt, which is community decisions and how we're going to fund capital. And so to me, I've always viewed OPEB and pension as two sides of the same coin. And so to me, if you're looking at your pension liability and the town of Holliston, as was the town of Weston, where I worked previously, is in the Middlesex County retirement system, which is about 50% funded. And you look back and you say, okay, we've made all of this progress on OPEB. We're at the forefront. The town of Holliston is at the forefront of funding OPEB in, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but we're falling behind or we're behind uh, when you're benchmarking us to other communities as it relates to the pension liability. And so it's interesting is when I got to this town, uh, I came here in 2020, the town was still not AAA, regardless of being the most aggressive in terms of funding OPEB in the state. And S&P gave the, the community great credit for its approach to OPEB, right? It was written up every single time, you know, S&P issued their bond rating at just below AAA. It mentioned one of the most positive things about Holliston is its approach to aggressively funding OPEB, but it continued to hit the community on its approach to pension, which was, you know, you're just going to fund what you're legally obligated to fund in a regional pension system. Um, and you don't seem to have a plan outside of that. And you're not really making a lot of progress there. And so one of the things that we did in addition to the OPEB trust contribution of $1.5 million was we created a pension stabilization fund where we're looking at the Middlesex County retirement system, which I believe is well run at this point, but they had some issues in the 90s and people still have a bad taste in their mouth about it. And so there was not a, a willingness within the community to quote unquote super fund our pension liability with the Middlesex County retirement system. And so what we decided to do was, well, if the community is interested in addressing long-term liabilities and being at the forefront of that, but we don't want to super fund the system that we're in, well, we could hedge and create a fund in between, right? So if in the future, the system that can legally obligate us to fund them on, on an annual basis were to go up, well, now we have a fund that, that can allow us to withstand that, that budget fluctuation. And so we created that fund and we we selected uh, an option under Mass General Law that allowed us to invest it the same way we invest our OPEB trust fund, which the community really likes. It's really interesting to hear that background and such an interesting case study in what what to do with windfall resources when you get them. We talk all the time about how easy it is to squander windfall resources, and clearly in this case, they decided to do something very forward-looking. I know that at the time that some of the, the new GASB reporting requirements around OPEB came out, a lot of communities considered going to a trust and doing the kind of pre-funding that you're doing. But I'd heard some of the pushback was out of the concern that if you do that, then you have a funded ratio like with pensions. That funded ratio probably looks pretty strong, at least initially, but that it might be hard to maintain that funded ratio. It sounds like that's part of the struggle that that you're dealing with here. In, in continuing 
to maintain that funded ratio, is the money that you're contributing coming from the same sources year in and year out as largely property taxes? Or are you having to like go out and generate new savings, do other steps from a budget perspective to make sure that you have those dollars to contribute each year? So it, it's pretty much, you know, once we're built in with a prop two and a half budget, which means, you know, it's, it's restricted by how much it can go up. In this town, for example, there is not a lot of non-residential contributing factors, right? Uh, it's it's about $56 million from taxes, which is, let's call it uh, an 85-15 split between residential and then commercial, industrial, personal property. And then we get about $10 million or more from the state uh, related to, you know, a variety of different formulaic components. And then we have local receipts, but in a community, again, that has some some growth restrictions based on a variety of infrastructure uh, issues, we don't have meals tax, we don't have all these different things. So, you know, our local receipts outside of taxes are, are pretty small. And so it is about really protecting the number within the operating budget as we roll forward on an annual basis, as we do our five-year revenue uh, and budget projections, as we look back on our past 10 years of, of sort of experience, right? Anytime we're spending lower than we budgeted or we're bringing in revenues higher than we estimated, we're generating what is in Massachusetts certified as free cash by the state on an annual basis. And that's really, it's kind of a community's everything in Massachusetts. You put that money into your reserves to hit your your funding ratios um, that you set as your financial policies. Another thing S&P is going to want to hear about you know, we use that to fund our capital, our capital plan outside of debt. And then so to rely specifically on that for things like your long term liabilities is where most communities are. So it is in, in one of the community uh, outside of Holliston that I mentioned earlier, Danvers, is that that's the number, right? It's We're going to get certified at our free cash number and it's going to be about a million dollars. You're going to have to take off X amount to go into OPEB. You're going to take off this amount to go into stabilization to hit our ratios. You're going to take off this amount and then anything else can go to capital. And that's how a lot of communities are doing this. And so what S&P and the bond rating agencies want to see is that you build it into your budget. And one of the main components of ARPA was you can't put this in your OPEB trust fund. So, you know, I, I think a number of communities, even the ones that have kind of been lagging behind, looked at that as like, you know, we never get these one-time monies and the one time we get it, we can't put it into the fund that we know we're lacking. On the flip side of that, what we saw a lot of communities do is, well, here are the things that we always pay for from free cash. So we're going to pay for those from ARPA and then we're going to take our our cash and we're going to put that into OPEB. So people, some people adjusted accordingly. And I think that, you know, the ARPA funds probably did, I think we'll see in the long run, have a positive impact on people's ability to put money into the OPEB trust funds. But it is, you know, it's, it's, it's about, again, if you want to leverage that, if you want to, if you want to talk to a bond rating agency about a higher bond rating, it's about showing that you can do that consistently. So even the one-time dollars, it might help you in the long run, but it's not, you, you, you have to find the consistent way that you're going to address it. That makes a ton of sense. It's it's really good to kind of pull up and, and highlight that too, for our listeners, uh, that, that pensions and OPEB being proactive in both. And in fact, I read that S&P report and that's exactly what it said. It said that it, it commended uh, Holliston for being proactive with, with both of those big liabilities. Oftentimes, as, as I've been covering pensions and OPEB, particularly with, with OPEB, people always like to point out that while pensions are constitutionally protected, pretty much in most places, OPEB is not. And people like to point out that out because the, the meaning, the unspoken meaning behind that is well, you, you can't change pensions, but you can change slash cut OPEB, and, and therefore maybe we don't need to worry about the liability as much. 
People say that, but I don't actually see that a lot in in practice. Can you tell me about, you know, what, I mean, has that been a conversation ever in Holliston? I mean, what's the, maybe you can shed some light on, on why that might not be so palatable. From a mass general law perspective, Massachusetts general law perspective, we at any given point don't have to negotiate changing the structure of how the town splits the cost of retiree benefits. We can go to 50-50 tomorrow without a discussion. And that's sort of the extent that that we could do. The change between what we're doing now, which is 60-40 and 50-50, if that drastically reduced our OPEB liability to the point where we could then, you know, not have to contribute 1.5 million, I think the community would have to look at that. But the reality is it doesn't, right? It, it does not drastically change that outlook. So it's something that at any given point we discuss, right? We we have to plan all of these things accordingly. We have to explain why we are set up the way that we are. I think 60-40 doesn't benchmark out well if you look at the employee or retiree side of municipalities in our area. And so I have to factor that in too, because we need to recruit and retain people to provide the services. So that's that's kind of a restriction that I see in Massachusetts where, you know, yes, there are options. If, if communities are really feeling like, you know, we can't keep up with, with what we need to do, we're never going to be able to hit this obligation. Those are things that, that are on the table in Massachusetts. What I would say, though, is, again, and this is why I view the pension OPEB two sides of the same coin uh, mindset as sort of how you let off with the question, which is, I know that at any given point, I get a bill from the Middlesex County Retirement System. I don't have a choice, right? Legally obligated that we fund that. And so there is no similar component to your point on OPEB. Anything that we're doing is that is our decision to do. And there, anybody who argues that OPEB is, is fake and, and doesn't need to you know, be taken seriously well, you're completely off base, right? But I'm also, I'm sort of middle of the road personally on it because I'm looking at in the next five years, in the next 10 years, think about the mindset of a bond rating agency. You're looking at the health of a municipality. If something catastrophic happens, how are we getting paid back? How is the borrower or the lender, excuse me, getting paid back from the borrower? And the reality is we have to pay the pension system and we don't have to pay OPEB. Now we would be negatively impacted if we decided to stop paying into the OPEB trust but I don't legally have an ability to say no to the pension system, right? And so that's why I look at those two things. It doesn't mean that OPEB isn't a serious concern, but again, it, it comes down to who's the first person getting paid in a catastrophic event is just the most simple way to look at it. And and it is, it is from the perspective of somebody who isn't a taxpayer, but is looking at the financial health of an organization. And so that's why I structure it that way. And again, that's why I come back to, and I think one of the questions you had is kind of like, what, what would an approach be to, for a municipality to start looking at this? You have to establish the plan that you can actually stick to because when you're going down the list of things that you have to pay, that the pension assessment, whether you have your own pension system or you're in a, a regional pension system, you have to pay that legally. The state is going to make you do that. And they're actually getting more and more, at least in Massachusetts, they're getting more and more uh, restrictive on what they'll allow you to have a funding plan out to. In Massachusetts, by law, you can't have a funding plan out beyond 2040. But every pension system in Massachusetts is overseen by a group called PERAC, which is a state organization that says, well, we're not going to accept an actuarial study that has a uh, funding schedule beyond 2035. And so that's where I'm getting crunched. And on OPEB, it's you need to have an actuarial study right by GASB. So we must do an actuarial study because we get in Massachusetts, and I believe most communities, most states, we have to have a, an independent auditor 
do our books every year. They sit down with our, our accountant, they present it to numerous boards. And within that is all everything that Gatsby changed, you know, five years ago, which everybody's balance sheet in at least the state of Massachusetts, I'm pretty sure the country went from either slightly positive to negative once the OPEB liability got slapped on there uh, from the Gatsby 75. And we have to address that and we have to show that we're addressing it and we have to do the actuarial study every two years and we do the we do the interim report every year and we, we specify that number, but nobody is le- legally obligating us to do anything with that schedule. We have to have it. We don't have to do anything with it. So that's where I look at the two things and I say, make sure you feel good about where you are with your pension before you go in and say, let's, you know, let's mortgage the future. Let's, let's be as aggressive as we can with our limited assets, with our limited flexi- uh, flexibility, and let's go all in on OPEB. It's like, well, that's a viable solution. If you, if you feel good about where you are with your long-term debt and your pension, yeah, that's great, right? You're, you're in position now to focus on OPEB and, and try to get into the game, try to get, you know, start to make progress, put assets that are going to sit on that balance sheet, right? And offset the liability. But if you aren't in a good position with your pension and you're swimming in debt, well, you know, are you throwing good money at bad right now because it's the pension that's really going to get you and, and it's going to cause you budgetary issues while you're looking ahead to OPEB. Well, thank you so much, Travis Ern, town administrator for the town of Holliston, Massachusetts. We really appreciate you giving us some time here on the Public Money Pod today. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks again to Travis for that really good primer on, on OPEB liabilities, what they're doing, some of the different things are to consider, and just that uh, the two sides of the same coin, OPEB and pensions. And I think that the piece I've, I've pulled for this week's Ripped from the Headlines actually is a, shows uh, how a lot of that stuff is playing out. In this particular case, where you're in Connecticut, this is a story. Uh, the headline is, Connecticut's pension debt gets attention, but retiree health care is worse off. Um, I mean, it's like they were listening to our conversation. Um, so this piece is by Keith Feneff, and it's really, really, it's like a, a case history of, of Connecticut and pensions and OPEB and what the state has done with pensions and what people are saying about OPEB. So um, I, I recommend folks read it, but I'll pull out some of the kind of the, the key points. Connecticut has made a lot of progress on pensions. Um, it was like the state that reporters like me love to beat up, <laughs> you know, for being so, so negligent. And 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 they have made a ton, a ton of progress. Employee unions say this uh, pensions are more stable now than at any other time in its 45 year history. And that that the state has slashed billions of dollars off of its pension debt. Of course, Connecticut still has a massive pension debt, but at the moment, it's uh, the state's pension funds for teachers is about 57% funded. And for state employees, it's just under 50% funded, which, I mean, that's that's a lot of progress for Connecticut. The story also notes, however, that the state's retiree health care liabilities, its OPEB funded ratio, is less than 13%. And the uh, reporter interviews uh, several people. One of them is a state senator, Kathy Austin, who is the co-chair of the legislature's appropriations committee. I guess when asked about this, she said, there's always going to be something else for us to do. Very typical response. Uh, she notes that it's 70 years of debt that, that they're having to take care of. She also asked, I guess, when asked specifically about pensions later on in the story, I guess she was asked, should the state be saving more money 
each year for retiree health care benefits and her response was not until we paid on our pension debt. And again, to me, that's very indicative of, of the conversation we just had. I mean, pensions are that that locked in locked in uh, requirement in Connecticut as it still has it's done really well, but it still has a lot of ground to make up. The story notes that the state has deposited about 5.8 billion in of its budget for surplus into its pensions. So it's 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 dumping as much money as it as it can into its pensions. Um, but it's it's OPEB, what it has done, the state's the state has made, you know, some kind of nimbling around the edges changes, um, uh, required employees to start contributing more to their retiree health care. Uh, the state has started contributing more. I think probably the, the biggest change that it has made is that the, it required retirees to first to use the Medicare Advantage program. And so once uh, retirees hit that age, 90% of the cost of services to those workers, uh, 65 and older, are now covered by the federal federal government. Um, that obviously helps a lot with those liabilities. The reporter points out that uh, the next state employee benefits contract is up for renegotiation and that the legislature and the governor are going to have some tough questions to answer then. It notes that that is a time that you could renegotiate some of these benefits and help help that liability some more. The union wrote in a statement that we're um, now at the point where we have a recruitment and retention crisis. Again, this is something that, that Travis brought up in terms of the, the OPEB benefits. Uh, the share that, that retirees have to pay is being a, an, a deterrent. Um, the union also notes we are not going to agree to make a bad situation worse by lessening the incentive to choose to be and remain in public service. So to me, it looks like 2027 might be the year to watch for Connecticut in terms of OPEB liabilities and will the state be able to to make some more progress there than it than it already has. Justin, I, I bounced around a lot. It's a long story. What were some of the things that that you kind of took away from all of that? Yeah, it is a long story, but it's it's the good kind of long because as you said, it <laughs> yeah. really does go into the a lot of detail about the the history, both the legislative and also just the kind of broader whatever you want to call it, cultural history surrounding pensions, which is such a it's so important. It's such a key part of this. And Travis alluded to it. You just alluded to it. I mean, that I was really struck by in reading this was in so many ways, there's nothing special about pensions vis-a-vis OPEB, except that pensions came first and were locked up in various state laws, constitution, in some cases, constitutional protections, other kinds of of restrictions that were put in place that said you really can't touch these benefits or at least making it very difficult to renegotiate them going back in the almost immediately kind of post-World War II era. At that time, retiree healthcare was was offered in some cases, but the notion that it would be as expensive as it's become or that it could be a liability that would ultimately be on par with pensions was just unheard of. It really is much more of a of a recent story. But when you look at the trajectories and you look at the tools that that you have to manage pensions versus OPEB, as Travis went into in, in quite a bit of detail, from a public money perspective, it's kind of an artificial distinction between the two. At the end of the day, it's a lot of money coming out of the same pocket to go to both of these different pools of benefits. And I think one of the things that this story really draws out and makes makes very clear is that there's a reason why pensions are more on the front burner, much more in the front of the minds of a lot of policymakers. But that reason has very little to do with public money and a lot to do with history and legislation. And so the challenge going forward is how to really put these things on on the same footing when it comes to how are we going to pay for them? What are the implications for credit? What does it mean for how we recruit and retain employees? In that sense, they're very, very comparable. And uh, maybe we should start thinking of them as more comparable than we tend to.
Thanks again to our Season 2 sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Podcast.